The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 21 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land of the Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and Moses and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, like I said, we're starting a, a new series. Uh, well, really, it's a series within the series. We've been going through the book of Exodus for the last 20 weeks. Um, And now we're at the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and we're going to spend 10 weeks going through each of the commandments. So one by one, we'll be plinking them off. And then uh, to kind of wrap off the series, it'll be about another 15 weeks. And so it'll probably be around June when we wrap up the story of Exodus. And when we come to the Ten Commandments, um, commentator Mark Roker says that we reach the climax of the book of Exodus, and that's, that's kind of a big statement because if you think of all the things that have happened, actually, not just the climax of the book of Exodus, but the climax of, of the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible. Because if you think about it, there's a lot of, uh, of incredible things that have happened up to this point. If you think through the story of Genesis and how that's all unfolded, and even into the story of Exodus, and we see the plagues and, and the splitting of the Red Sea, like there's a lot of really epic, incredible things that are happening. If you're making a movie, this would be great movie-making material. This book of Exodus is filled with adventure and wonder and excitement. See, and I'll just recap here for you because we're right in the middle of the book, so there's lots that we've kind of gone through already. So I'll give you uh, the first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus in two minutes or less. Ready? Brace yourself. Exodus 1, we see Israel subjected to 400 years of cruel Egyptian slavery, being beat down, giving impossible tasks. Exodus 2 We see this man, Moses, is born, and he makes his way into Pharaoh's household. He's raised up as an Egyptian, but he's really an Israelite, and he realizes he's an Israelite, and he murders an Egyptian one day when they're kind of being taskmasters and driving the slaves to work harder and harder, and he he kills one of the Egyptians, and he gets chased out out of Egypt. Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. He says, hey, Moses, I want you to go back. I want you to bring my people back to me. And then in Exodus 4 through 10, we see God giving Moses powerful signs and wonders to do before Pharaoh. So so he turns the Nile River into blood. There's locusts, there's flies, there's frogs, there's boils, there's hails, there's complete darkness. And after all of these things, uh, uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And and Pharaoh says, nope, not going to do it. Until finally, in Exodus 11 and 12, we see a final plague, which wipes out all of the firstborn Egyptian males in one evening. And finally, Pharaoh caves. He gives them the boot. He says, Israel, get out of here. 
And then in Exodus 14, 13 and 14, Pharaoh has a change of heart. The thing that he gave away, he wants now, he wants to have back now, and he pursues Israel. He pins them up against the Red Sea, and then God splits the waters in order to deliver Israel out into safety. And then from Exodus 15 onward, we see Israel out in the wilderness, walking around. they, They have this idea that God has taken them to this promised land, but right now they're wandering through. And through the midst of it, God is doing incredible things. And so last week, we finally came to the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, where God assembles his people, and he comes down on the mountain. Do you remember this scene, right? The smoke, the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake. It was epic, right? I'll read, I'll read these few um, verses here. This is from Exodus 19, 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, And the very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. See, this is an epic, epic scene here. If you're a special effects guy, you're going nuts because this would be awesome. This is the epic encounter in which God's people receive the Ten Commandments. So it's easy to see here when Mark Mark Roker says that this is the the climax of the book of Exodus or the climax of the Pentateuch. It's very clear here because here is literally lights and flashes and thunder and lightning, all of this stuff. And in the Ten Commandments, God is going to tell his people the laws for living. See, in the last chapter, God said, I'm I'm making you a holy people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And then now he's saying, okay, if that is true, if that's your identity, this is what it looks like to live in that identity. So he gives them these 10 commandments. See, what God is doing here, he has set them free so that they would live free. He has set them free so that they would live free. And to live free is to live by the law. Now, that seems counterintuitive, right? To live free, you want to put more laws on me? You want to restrict me? Right? This doesn't make sense to those of us who are in, in the, the land of the free, in the home of the brave, right? We, we equate freedom with less rules, more liberty, less laws. But this is actually an immature view of freedom. See, certainly too many laws would be tyranny, That's kind of what they were subjected to in in Egypt. There was tyranny going on here, too many laws. But a world without laws and without governance would be just as frightening. Without some sort of regulation and order, there would always be chaos. Just think of it, going to the grocery store without the law of gravity in place, right? Tomato soup, right? You got stuff, chaos all around you. Try, try living in a take-what-you-want, do-what-you-want sort of society. It would lead to societal breakdown and complete dysfunction. See, ultimately, the absence of laws would lead to an even more intense form of slavery, slavery of fear. And God did not set his people free from the Egyptians in order that they would live underneath a new kind of slavery. He set them free to live free. He, he set them free on purpose, and, and through the Ten Commandments, he is showing them how to live free. And so as God's people abide by these commandments, Israel will experience this freedom that they crave, and they'll also experience human flourishing. See, this is what's true of Israel, but, but when we look at this, there's this question of, is this, really, is this still true for us? Over 3,000 years removed from this Exodus story here, the Ten Commandments, are these really, these laws, these commandments still in effect for us today? And if they are, what, what sort of significance do they have in our lives? How are we supposed to interact with them? Now, to answer these questions, we need to, to look and see not just the face value of the Ten Commandments, but to look at what's at the heart, what's at the root of the Ten Commandments. 
And so for the, the next 10 weeks, that's what we're doing. We're going to drill down one by one and kind of evaluate and, and examine what is the heart, what is God really after in putting forth these 10 commandments. And today we're looking at the first commandment, which is this, that you shall have no other gods before me. Now scholars, the vast majority of scholars, say that the 10 commandments go in order of importance so that this commandment being the first commandment, there's no mistake, this is something that we need to perk our ears up to, that there is only one God. And so this, what this commandment does, it actually lays the foundation for all of the other commandments and it asserts the great theological truth, soli deo gloria, which means glory to God alone. See, this means that God is the only one that is worthy of our worship, of our joy, of our joy, of our glory, that he's completely de- deserving of our, of our devotion and our praise. And when I say that, some of us might think, you know what, I do a pretty good job of this. I go to church on Sundays, I go to MC, I pray, I read my Bible. I'm pretty devoted to God. But the reality is, is that we're constantly divvying out praise and worship. See, the glory is getting spread out. There are all kinds of little G gods in our lives that are competing against the one true God. They're competing for our affections, for our time, for our energies. And so as Christians, what we need to do is we need to be able to identify and repent of those gods. See, if we want to keep the most important commandment, we must be able to say, that thing does not get my worship this God does. So today we are going to talk about how to identify those competing gods or these functional gods. Some of you might already kind of know what those are in your own heart, and as we identify them, we're going to talk about what it looks like to actually live and to keep the first commandment in light of the finished work of Christ. So that's where we're going. But before we go into that, God gives us another preface as the people stand at the base of the mountain. So we're going to, actually today, we're, we're just going to be in the first three verses of chapter 20, and then we'll kind of keep going each week. But here, uh, we'll take a look at um, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, right here, even in these two verses, there's a lot being communicated to us. There's some things that we need to pick up on before we dig in here. The first thing is this, that God is giving these words directly to his people. See, up to this point, God has been using uh, Moses as a mouthpiece to communicate between him and his people, and now this time God is speaking directly to his people. So one of the things that this tells us is that the law is not a, a reactionary thing from Moses. There's some scholars who are convinced that, you know, Moses made up these Ten Commandments. Um, he got tired. We go back a couple chapters where we see Moses is divvying or working his way through all these arguments and these scuffles that the people are having. He's, I'm tired of this. I'm going to set some rules up so you people can figure this stuff out on your own. But that's not the case. See, the Ten Commandments are not uh, a result of Moses' frustration. See, I was driving home from church. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, we're driving home from church a couple of weeks ago, and we've got about a 10 to 15-minute drive between this building and, and our, our house, and um, I'm driving, and probably at least 45 times on the way home, I get this question. What you doing? What you doing? I'm driving, buddy. just driving down the road. What you doing? Still driving. What you doing? Still driving, right? What you doing? Okay, new rule. New rule. No more questions. No more questions till we get home, right? This sort of out of frustration. I kind of lay out these rules here. This is not what's happening with Moses. He's not fed up. This is God who's actually speaking directly to the people. So what we see, the Ten Commandments are not reactionary to the circumstances. They have always been in place because these commandments communicate the eternal character and will of God for his people. Peter Enns, who's a commentary, who comments on this, he says, The giving of the law at Sinai is not the first time Israel hears of God's laws, but is the codification and the explicit promulguation of these laws. 
See, those, though this is the first time that the laws are formally given, these commandments are as old as a human race. We can actually trace these commandments through the story of Genesis up into the beginning of Exodus here. See, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, the Ten Commandments were essentially summed up in one commandment that God gave, God gave Adam and Eve. Hey, this tree here, stay away from that. If you can keep that one commandment, that one, one rule that I lay out for you, you essentially keep all of the Ten Commandments. But obviously, they, they couldn't keep it. And then they can't keep the other ten that follow either. And there's this progression through Genesis and Exodus where you see this relationship between covenant breaking and God's judgment upon those who break the covenant or commandments. We see this with Cain when he kills Abel. That's the sixth commandment. He is judged and he is sent roaming the earth. Noah's son was cursed for dishonoring his father. That's the fifth commandment. We see Sodom and Gomorrah, entire cities that are judged for their adultery. That's the seventh commandment. Abraham lied and broke the ninth commandment. Rachel stole and broke the eighth commandment. Lot's wife was covetous. That's the tenth commandment. We see in Exodus the ten plagues that are judgment upon Egypt and their gods, which are breaking of the first and second commandments. We see at the burning of the bush where God taught Moses how to honor his name. That's the, the third commandment. And by giving manna six of the seven days, God was teaching his people about the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment, even in the creation story. We see that Sabbath day. And so you can see how since the beginning of God, God's time, beginning of human race, God has been teaching his people what it looks like to live a free life. He's telling them what kind of a God he is and how they are to live in light of that. And so as they receive, as these commandments come directly from God, they come with absolute authority and with insight to the good life. That's the first thing. They come directly from God. The second thing is that the Ten Commandments come after Israel has already received grace and salvation. Look at verse two. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought, that's past tense, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, the law comes within the context and framework of grace. First, God sets them free, then he gives them the law to live by. It's not the other way around. If it were the other way around, that would not be grace. That would be a merit-based thing. He would drop in the Ten Commandments, once you guys figure this out, then I'll get you out of here. That's not what he did. See, grace comes first and then the law. The geography of this is actually revealing because here they're receiving the Ten Commandments not in Egypt, but at the foot of Mount Sinai after they've already been brought out. So grace comes first, God saves them first, and then he gives them the law. Christopher Wright, he's a, um, an author who wrote a very substantial work called The Mission of God. He writes this, the indicative of God's grace, let me back up. Actually, no, the indicative of God's grace comes before and is the foundation and authority for the imperative of the law and responsive obedience. The very meaning of the law is grounded in the gospel of God's saving work in history. You see, this, this idea brings us to the discussion of indicatives and imperatives, because this is true, because this happened, because this is the indicative, which they have been saved from Egypt. They respond in obedience. Their obedience is the imperative. Rucker also comments on this. The demands of God follows the gift of God. You see, this is the order of grace. This is how God deals with his people. He shows them grace first, then he lays out his commands. Now, if you're not a Christian or if you're, you're unfamiliar with how, how Scripture works, unfamiliar with the gospel, then there's a chance that when you think of the Ten Commandments, you think of cumbersome, burdensome, restricting rules that God puts on us in order to live. And that makes sense because to really understand the beauty of, of God's commandments, we have to first understand the beauty of the gospel and his grace that he offers so if that's you, if, if you're thinking, oh, yeah, it sounds pretty burdensome, it, it sounds um, uh, uh, binding to me, that's fine. That's fine. And, and we want to, hopefully, that as we work our way through this, you see that's not necessarily the case. 
But there's one thing that I want to clear up first and foremost as we wade into this, and that is this, that God does not love you based on your ability to keep the Ten Commandments. See, God's love for his people is an undeserved love. He looks at you at your current state without makeup, without your life together, with your kids running around crazy, and he says, I love you because I love you. See, this is what's so scandalous about Christianity. Every other religion says, follow these rules, and then you'll be loved. Follow these rules, then you'll be somebody. Then you'll be accepted. See, Christianity is the opposite. It says, says, you can't earn God's love. It's, It's above your pay grade. But you can be gifted it. You can receive it through grace. So my prayer for you, if this, this is you, your mindset with the Ten Commandments, my prayer is that, that before you hear what God wants from you, you hear what God has offered you, what he's given you in his perfect son. Okay, so I want to go back to Rucker where he has this quote, the demands of God follows the gift of God, and the gift of God should be ever present in the mind to motivate obedience to God's commandments. What he's saying here is that God's grace is not only uh, uh, what sort of starts the desire for us to obey God, but it motivates us. It keeps us on that path. It's because we have tasted the goodness of God in salvation that we understand the goodness of God in the direction and plan for our lives. Martin Luther was having a discussion with his students uh, at one point, and they were talking about the... um, the reality of, of God's grace, um, his, his free gift of salvation in Christ based upon the works of Christ, and then what it looks like to live by the law, to, to obey, the, the balance between grace and obedience. And he, was, he was, got done talking about how Jesus had, had offered them salvation based upon his work and not their work, and, and the student objected, and she said, if, if what you're saying is true, then we may live as we want, right? And you're thinking, oh, no, that's not true. That can't be true, right? But listen to what Luther said. He said this. He responded. Here's what she said. If you're saying this is true, then we may live as what we want. And Luther responds, yes. But now do you, what do you want? You see that? Once you have experienced God's grace, once you've experienced him work on your behalf for salvation, all you want is more God. Everything else pales in comparison. See, this is what happened with the Israelites back in Exodus 19. They've experienced God's act of salvation on their behalf, and then Moses comes to them and says, hey, will you you be God's people? Will you do what he commands? And they say, yes, all that the Lord commands we will do. They were so eager because they had experienced the grace of God. The third thing that we need to see going in here is that the Ten Commandments are meant to lead to joy. See, Israel would have been very familiar with laws. Certainly Pharaoh had a whole laundry list of things that they had to do to make him happy. They would have been burdensome. They would have worked long hours, hard days, would have robbed them of their freedoms and stolen a lot of joy from them. That's because these laws that were placed upon them came from a dictator. Pharaoh was a dictator. But on the contrary, the commandments from God come from a loving father, not a dictator. They come from a place of love which promotes flourishing and joy. You wonder, how how can laws promote flourishing and joy? Aren't laws restricting by nature? No. Slavery is restricting by nature. The laws of the Lord are life-giving. And so when God made man, he designed him to live a certain way, within these certain parameters. He gave him boundaries to live in. And, And it's within these boundaries that man is able to experience the truest form of joy. About two years ago, my wife and I, we bought our first home in the Broadway district of Rock Island on this quiet little street 
Um, and, and at the time, we had a, Kuiper was one year old. Um, we had this nice backyard that was kind of a nice open space that he could run around, but there was no fence. And so going outside with him was a very stressful event, not only for me, because every, you know, I, I would be like freaking out like he's going to get hit by a car, but it's also very unenjoyable for him because every 15 seconds I'm yelling at him to stop. Don't go there. Very stressful. It's not a lot of fun to be a parent or a child in that situation if, if you feel like you're on an invisible leash. So the next spring, I got a couple of my buddies, and we built a fence up in our backyard. And because of that fence is there now, and it's actually doing its job, we can send Kuiper out in the backyard. I'll go out there with him, too. I don't just, like, leave him out. See you later, man. We send him out to the backyard, and he can run around, and he can play. He can kick his ball around. He can do what he wants. See, it's because, because of this fence, we know that he's within a certain parameters that keep him safe. So in this sense, he can be carefree. He can do whatever he wants within the boundaries of the fence. And because of this fence is there, I can enjoy that as well. I can see him having more fun because of it. See, the same principle is at play here with God's commandments. God puts up his commandments as sort of a parameter, sort of indicates what's out of bounds. Because on the out of bounds, there's danger there. So we see that his commandments are like a fence that keep us in a safe place where we can have all kinds of fun. We can run and play. And so when you look at the Ten Commandments, I want to challenge you to not look at them like a barrier to freedom. See his commandments as a guardrail to keep you happy and safe. See that each plank in the fence is a reminder of God's love for you and that he wants you to live a life of flourishing See, these are three things that we need to keep in mind as we kind of work our way through the Ten Commandments. The one, one, that they come directly from a wise God. Two, that they come after having experienced grace. And three, that these laws, these commandments are here to promote flourishing. See, I think that this is the spirit that Israel receives the Ten Commandments in our passage. He, they don't see them as cumbersome and restricting They don't see them as yet another set of shackles. They see them as life-giving, life-promoting. They see them as full of wisdom from a loving father who pours out his grace. And so in in God communicating that and, and the Israelites seeing that, God starts going down the list and tells them how he has designed his people to live. And he says in verse three, you shall have no other God's before me. Now, this would have been very confrontational to the Israelites because up to this point, for the last 400 plus years, they've been surrounded by all kinds of polytheism, the worship of many different gods. It was customary in Egypt and their surrounding nations to worship several different pagan gods at once. And in a pagan religion, no god was considered ultimate. No God possessed unlimited power or unlimited wisdom. They were thought more of like superhuman entities. Sure, they had some extra power, but they were still flawed with impulses and desires and capable of doing evil, heinous things. And really, when you, when you step back and, and sort of evaluate what, what pagan society kind of deemed as God figures, these gods made terrible gods, they certainly were not worthy of worship. And so it's at the core of this first commandment, God is saying there is only one true God. Sure, there are plenty of pretend gods out there. There's counterfeit gods, but they're not real. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. As we see Paul write in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, he says, For we know an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. And that God, that one God is the God who delivered his people out of Egypt. We also see in the first commandment, God is saying that not only is he the only God, but he demands exclusive devotion, forsaking all others. 
He's saying there's no other gods before me. Other translations say uh, there's no other gods next to me, except me, over me, in front of me, um, in, in opposition to me, in defiance of me. What God is saying is that we are exclusive. Right? This sounds a lot like marriage language, right? Like a covenant is being made, like a, a binding commitment. Your vows, or you, if you've gone to a wedding recently, vows probably said something like this, where a bride or groom says, forsaking all others, I hold to thee. What are they doing? They're, they're pledging themselves, they're committing themselves entirely to that spouse, exclusively to their spouse. See, in a marriage relationship, there's, there's no room for a side boo. If you've got a side boo, you're doing it wrong. See, if, if my wife were to step out on me, God forbid, there would be no place for that dude except for maybe underneath my car or at the end of my fist, right? There's no place for that in a marriage relationship, in a faithful, committed relationship. See, this is, this is the nature of God's relationship with his people, that you would be my people, I would be your God. So what God's saying, there's no place. We're exclusive. I'm committed to you, so you be committed to me. And God has actually proven already his devotion time and time again to the people of Israel throughout Exodus, how he's meeting their needs in the, in the wilderness and, and ultimately how he delivered them out of Egyptian slavery. He's proved that they are his treasured possession, so now he is calling them to reciprocate and treasure him in return. See, this sort of exclusive, the exclusivity of this would have been radical for the Egyptians in this time. Now, when, when we look at the first commandment, this might not seem quite as daunting or intimidating, right? After all, I, I don't pray to any other gods. I don't make sacrifices to another gods. I don't tithe to any other gods, right? So I must be good, right? Well, not, not so fast. There's a, there's a difference here. What we need to see, there's a difference between confession and function, Right, what do I mean by that? While we might profess with our mouths that our, our worship ex is exclusively for God, functionally, we are worshiping different things in our heart. Right? And these things typically are good things that have become displaced into ultimate things. And they function as God substitutes. Now, whatever the God substitute is, it is functioning at that moment as your God. It is a functional God. Luther, Martin Luther describes it like this. That which, that which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Right? This could be an endless amount of things. It could be your kids, your money, your comfort, your reputation, your job, your spouse, your health, your fitness, your schedule, your plans, whatever it is, whatever you trust in, whatever you hope in, whatever your heart rests on, that is your God, your functional God. It's whatever makes you a somebody, whatever makes you feel happy, Whatever gives you an identity, it's what you love, what you desire, what you chase after. Perhaps one of the most common functional gods through all time and space is the functional god of stuff, of money and possessions. See, money and possessions, if we trust in it, if we hope, if our hope is in those things, then there's a sense of security when we have money, right? We feel we're okay, we can get through it. We have something to fall back on. And Luther sort of builds this out in his larger catechism. It's kind of a, a lengthier quote, but he can say it far better than I am. So here, I'm gonna read through this. Here's what he says. Many one thinks that he has God and everything in abundance when he has money and possessions. He trusts in them and boasts in them with such firmness and assurance as to care for no one. Lo, such a man also has a God, mammon by name, i.e. money and possessions, on which he sets his heart. 
and which is also the most common idol on earth. He who has money and possessions feels secure and is joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise. On the other hand, he who has none doubts and is despondent as though he knew of no God. For very few are to desire, oh, sorry, for very few are to be found who are of good cheer and who neither mourn nor complain if they have not mammon, that is money or possessions. This care and desire for money sticks and clings to our nature even to the grave. See, I think this is a temptation that we all sort of face in our lives. Whether we have money or don't have money, there's this, this temptation to make money or things our sort of functional God, the thing that offers security, the thing that makes us feel like we're a somebody. Now, maybe, maybe for you it's money, maybe it's not. But I know one thing, that we all fail at keeping the first commandment, and so we all have these functional gods, So what are they? What is it in your heart that you functionally trust in? What do you you put your trust and your hope in? What do you crave and work so hard to gain or keep? Is it the approval of others? Is it what your spouse thinks of you? What captures your imagination and consumes your energy? Is it your appearance? Is it the plan that you've laid out for your life? Where do you go for comfort? What tells you everything is gonna be fine? Is it the stability of your job? Or is it to be inside the comfort of your own home, food? See, these functional gods, whatever they are, And I'll leave it to you to pinpoint what that is in your heart. But these functional gods, they offer some sense of security when they're within reach. But as soon as they're gone or or they vanished, they let us down. Right? We become ruined and angry, despondent, perhaps even depressed. And we shake our fists at God and say, how dare you? How dare you take that away from me? But really what's happening is the folly of our functional God is being revealed for what it is, right? You're you're looking for a knockoff to do what only the real deal can accomplish. And so we're missing out. When we are wrapped up in the worship of functional gods, we're missing out. We're missing out on the beauty and the truth that God is sufficient, that God satisfies like nothing else in this world can, not money, not sex, not power, not relationships. It's God who's able to satisfy. See, all of our hopes and our trust can rest upon him and he can actually shoulder it. He won't let us down when we trust in him. And I don't mean that things are gonna be the way that we exactly plan them to be, but it does mean that God's perfect plan will always prevail. And if we are in Christ, then it is all being worked out together for our good. Romans 10, 11 says, all who trust in God will not be put to shame. So the aim and the heart of the first commandment is that God would be all that we have and that in having only God, we would have everything we need in him. He is saying to us, I want you to see me for who I am and be so delighted in who I am and what I have done for you that you won't look anywhere else. Friends, this is an incredible invitation coming from the Lord of glory himself. I want you to have me. See, when we hold to the first commandment, we are saying, I have nothing but God, but God is all I need. I have everything I need in him. See, this is what God is communicating to his people out in the wilderness. 
with the water, with the food, with, with every little bump and bruise along the way. God is trying to communicate to them, I am all that you need. And that when you have nothing else, you still have me, and I'm sufficient. So because of this, our trust can rest on him. Our happiness pours out from him, and our comfort is secure in him. Now, I realize that sounds like a bumper sticker, maybe, sort of ideal. Sounds great on paper, but it's a lot harder in real life to actually believe this. If we're, and if, if, we're, if we're thinking that this is an easy endeavor, we're fooling ourselves. You see, for me, it's so alarming to see how easily distracted I am by these functional gods in my life. Right? This is just this week, I, as I was wrestling with this, tra- this text, I was tracing places in my life where I am functionally doubting the goodness of God. Where I'm saying, you know what, God? You actually aren't enough. This can provide me something better. Right? That's, that's the reality of, of the human heart and the human condition. That we're functionally finding our trust or, or our hope or, or joy or delight or whatever it is in, in other things. And so when we start to, to give ourselves an honest evaluation, it's clear that we are terrible at keeping the first commandment. We fail so badly. And the scary thing is, really, because we're, we're in Exodus 20 here, if, if we were to kind of continue our survey through the rest of the Bible, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus sort of ups the ante on this commandment. See, not only are we supposed to be exclusively devoted to God, but we are to devote everything that we have to God himself. Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. What he's saying here, love God with all your all. Love God with all your everything. Every ounce of you should be devoted to God. Now, this isn't a priority list thing, okay? This isn't like I've got a linear sequence of things where God's number one and then two through nine, I can kind of, you know, divvy out however I want. It's not linear in that sense. See, what Jesus is commanding us to do, give God our all, give God our everything, this, is, this means that our life should revolve entirely around God, that the center of our lives is God. And so in doing that, we are freed and we are actually enabled to do everything to his glory. Just like 1 Corinthians 10 talks, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, in your work, your relationships with your money, your health, your beauty, whatever you do, do it to God's glory. Make it about God. Because it is about God. See, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see a man who did this. He was completely devoted to God. All of his all was for God. From the days of his youth where he devoted himself to the word of the Lord in the temple all the way up to his, to his crucifixion, he never had a functional God. There was nothing that deterred his worship from the true God. There was nothing he had hope in or trusted in more than his heavenly father. He found no comfort in his home. He found no comfort in his wealth because he didn't have any. There was no material thing or relationship that captivated him more than his heavenly father. But we need to see here is is Jesus didn't just like keep the law in sort of an external way to appease God, but Jesus fulfilled the law. He embodied the law. He delighted in it. He, He was satisfied in it. And being satisfied in God, he trusted his father in all things at all times, even in the most trying of situations. We see when Jesus is out in the the wilderness being tempted by Satan for those 40 days and 40 nights. He's trusting and hoping in God. All the way up to the day of his crucifixion where he is mocked. Literally, voices from the crowd are mocking him for trusting God as he hung on the cross. Matthew 27, 43, people are saying, he trusts in God? Let God rescue him. 
This is, to me, this is interesting, that even people who don't like Jesus see how he is keeping the first commandment up on the cross, that his trust is in God. But here's the thing. God did not bring him down off the cross, even though Jesus' trust was in God. God left Jesus up on that cross because it was only by Jesus' perfect obedience to the point of death that we would be the ones who are rescued. Because of our inability to keep the first commandment, we deserve the death that Jesus died on that cross. And he stayed up there in our place, paying the price once and for all for all of our misplaced worship. See, Jesus was judged for us. See, according to how, how God's law works, Jesus should have been blessed in keeping the laws. But he was cursed so that those who deserve God's judgment and curse could be blessed in him. Now, this is good news. This is good news that even after the law, even after the Ten Commandments were given to his people, God still had grace because he knew that we were unable to keep them perfectly. That is good news for us in light of our failures. So what now? How do we, how do we respond to this? How do we handle this? How do we interact with this? What does it look like for us to keep the first commandment now? Now, certainly, the principles that we've kind of hit on already apply, and they continue and carry on, that we're exclusively and entirely devoted to God, that all of our trust, all of our hope is to rest on him. But because of the gospel, there is now a new reality to the first commandment. And it's this, in order to keep the first commandment, you must only trust Christ for your salvation. Martin Luther was a genius when he put these pieces of the puzzle together here. He, he linked how the first commandment and the doctrine of justification by faith alone are really one and the same. You see, the first commandment is this, to only trust God. Justification by faith is this, only trust Jesus for your salvation. See, in light of the gospel, these things are the same because Jesus is both God and he is the way to God. John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is confrontational to the people in our city. This is confrontational to us, right? Because we're living in a time where there aren't necessarily many gods, but there are many roads that lead to God. There's a common mantra among the nice, friendly people in our city. It kind of goes like this. If I'm a good person, if I do the right thing, if I try, treat people with respect, well, then that's good enough to get me to heaven, Right? This is one of the many roads in which we approach God. It's, it's the idea of moralism is the way to get to heaven. But friends, we ought to be concerned for those people, concerned for the souls of those people, because really they're being deceived. To think like this is to break the first commandment. It's to trust in your own work, in works-based righteousness, not in righteousness that's foreign to us from faith in Christ. See, if you look at your works and your good deeds as the merit in which you're acceptable to God, then your, your hope and your trust is not on him. It's not on God. It's on you. That you have become your own functional God. That you are the one who's worthy of trust. And let me tell you something. I, I might not know you, but I know you well enough to say that you make a terrible God. So this morning, what I want to do in light of, of what, what God has laid out in his Ten Commandments and what, what we see in the gospel, I want you to call you to repent this morning of the ways that you replace the one true God with functional gods.
I want you to repent of the ways that you sidestep exclusivity in trusting God, the ways that you, you, you sidestep giving him all of your all, to repent of the ways that, that you have uh, laid out this workspace righteousness. And what I want you to do is trust Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law when you couldn't do it. Trust in him for your salvation. Trust in him for your right standing before God. And know that he is eager to receive you on account of what Christ has done. See, not only... Not only are your, your transgressions, your sins, your, your covenant or your commandment breaking forgiven, but you are deemed as righteous as you trust in Christ. I know this, that as you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in you, enabling you, freeing you to step into this, to step into the first commandment, to trust Christ for your right standing before God that the Holy Spirit is at work equipping you with all you need in life and godliness, teaching you how to live a happy and holy life to the glory of the one true God, the Father of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Rescuer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the wisdom and the truth and the light that is in it. Pray, Father, that these would be words of life for us, not a binding rule or a binding um, law that we must dutifully carry out in order to, to make you happy with us, but to see that Christ has fulfilled that, and through Christ, we are lovely to you. And I ask for help, Father, because this is part of you making us into a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that you would help us to live, to live within the Ten Commandments, to live within, within these boundaries that you've so clearly laid out for us. But even more so, Father, I pray that you would help us to know the reality of Christ and his finished work on the cross on our behalf so that in him we can live a happy and flourishing life for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name.